0: This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them.
1: And hello, this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with Rob and Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob.
0: Uh, Rob, you're Down Under, this is Mob here, and I'm actually up above.
1: Okay, yes, so so I believe you're in beautiful, um, no doubt, Ann Arbor, Michigan.
0: I'm currently in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is uh, about uh, 20 or so miles out of Detroit. It's where a lot of people, I think, left... Detroit to go and live because I think Ann is much nicer but uh, yes I'm having a very pleasant time here and I'm off to a uh, games convention in Indianapolis tomorrow oh, but oh. on my way here
1: Oh, yes, go on. Oh, well, I should say that uh, one of the games that you're going to be, I uh, think, previewing there is uh, the game written by our, our previous guest. Um, we, we should we should go into that a little bit for the, I'm sure, masses of uh, Confederate, uh, American Civil War and um, and games play crossover group.
0: We should, yes. Uh, Chris Gidlow, who was our guest uh, a couple of episodes ago, uh, the highly entertaining episodes we had about the Confederate flag. <laughs> Um, Chris is a bit of a polymath, not only is he is an expert on King Arthur, he's not only the head of live interpretation at the historical Royal Palace of, of London and a big Civil War buff, he's also written a card game, which is a simulation of the Council of Nicaea in 325, and this game is called Credo, and it's the game of duelling dogmas, and uh, it's it's the pleasure of my game company that I, that I work for to uh, bring out a new edition of that game. We're going to be demoing it at uh, Gen Con in a couple of days' time. Very exciting.
1: Well, actually, we, we should, um, given that we're, we're, we're kind of into um, uh, you know, doing, uh, doing podcasts about um, you know, anniversaries of famous events, so does that mean that the the seventeen hundredth uh, anniversary of the Council of Nicaea is coming up in 10 years' time?
0: It was in three twenty-five, so we'll have to we'll have to bear that in mind. I'll put it in the calendar, Rob. Okay, okay. I'm sure we could get
1: well. Well, so far we've got forty episodes out of uh, the Voyage of the Shadow although I, I imagine that the Council of Nicaea probably did not um, did not take place over more than a year, and um, also you know did not take place during a journey around the world. So there might be rather fewer episodes of that. <laughs>
0: Very possibly. So on my way here, Rob, it's really interesting. I I flew from uh, Abu Dhabi in the Middle East to Dallas, Fort Worth. It was a 16-hour flight, and it went directly over Greenland. And uh, I've never flown over Greenland in clear weather. So uh, the view was absolutely amazing, and it made me think when I was looking down at all the uh, icebergs and ice flows and everything else this is exactly the same latitudes the Shenandoah was in at about this at about this same time. And boy, it, it looked really dangerous down there. You'd have to really keep your eyes out or you'd be uh, in lots of trouble. So it was fascinating. I know I was looking at Greenland. I wasn't actually looking at uh, the Sea of Otosk or uh, the Bering Sea, but I'm sure it was quite similar in terms of the uh, ice that was floating about that would have been a great uh, a great danger to all.
1: Uh, yes, although of course um, there are some um, there are some theories that um, uh, the actual amount of sea ice is increasing um, as a result of uh, of global warming. But um, given, oh, given that a... must be
0: really confusing the uh, the alarmists <laughs> and the and the denialists. I don't know where to go with that one. No,
1: no. Given that I actually don't know where to go with that one either. I, I think we might we might just leave that one alone. Uh, you know. But although um, what you said about uh, that you're in the same. Um, I presume the same latitudes, even though in a different um, different part of the world, the same latitudes that the Shenandoah went through. Um, that that brings up something as well, because I've been trying to get my head around. The whole latitude and longitude business, um, throughout the course of our, of our 40 episodes of podcasting. And I, I think I've finally come to, to some minor understanding of it. So, um, I, I might have a, a bit of a talk about that uh, a bit later in the episode. So, um, yes, I have to say, when, when you said that you were, to me, that you were going to Detroit, I was thinking a bit more like, you know, the, um, the uh the biopic of m M&M, m you know eight mile where em you know, where detroit is a bit of a, a bit of a hell hole but um ann arbor is, is a bit less of a hell, hell hell hole i imagine no i'm at um i'm at uh 46 kilometer from
0: <laughs> detroit and it's, it's extraordinarily pleasant here at my at my friend's class we just had uh a steak that would have done a uh, southern gentleman proud it was truly enormous i think my friend rick told me my steak was an oh rick by the way was a Another guest yes. that we've had on Shannon Down and if you go back to, oh, we'll have to check exactly what episode number it was, but uh, folks, I'm at the house of Rick Moynes, who was our guest that was reminiscing about the uh, journeys that he'd taken as a child to Civil War battlefields, um, and this was earlier on in the piece, probably about episode 15 or, look, or something, um, look, look, look. Well, I'm at Rick's house.
1: Tell, tell you what, um, we'll, we'll, we'll just—I'll uh, I'll say very confidently what episode it is, and uh, I'll splice it in later so that the, the, the listeners will notice an awesome pause uh, when I when I state authoritatively that that was an episode twenty-five. Exactly, wasn't I right? Oh,
0: just brilliant, Rob. <laughs> that was so seamless. <laughs> well, Rick, uh, Rick served me up a eighteen-ounce steak uh, tonight. Oh my and goodness. I'm now sitting, sitting, there trying to digest it. Oh my goodness, it was amazing. Well, well. So that... Rob,
1: go on. Well, uh, it probably gives you some insight into um, how the the crew of the Shenandoah felt after they ate their hundred pound pig on Christmas Ex- Day.
0: Exactly. So speaking of the Shenandoah, as as we <laughs> should, because that is the topic of our podcast. Uh, we are steaming down into the Pacific, yes. and um, having having captured. Uh, a enormous number of whalers, many of whom are uh, who were furiously waving newspapers <laughs> saying the war is over, the war is over. Uh, we've got the Shenandoah steaming down into the Pacific uh, away from the uh, pack ice and floating icebergs and they're desperately looking for a uh, ship that is heading from San Francisco to China so that they can get the latest news. I was having a look in the uh, journal of Mr. Whittle, and I'm, I'm holding that up at the microphone here in in Ann Arbor, because I bought the book with me, uh, the Shenandoah: A Memorable Cruise, and they are, I think, getting to the point where they're thinking, hmm, we really do need to get confirmation of this because he's he's reiterated that they're looking for one of these uh, ships that is heading out of San Francisco with with the latest
1: news. Yes, well, um, I have to say. Um... Uh, midshipman Midshipman Mason, um, and I, I, I have to announce with some sadness that uh, the um, the rather rather wonderful um, diary of Midshipman Mason that we've been um, uh, we've been um, you know, getting so much out of in the in the last few months. Um, put it this way, I can't hold it up to the microphone because I'm looking at the PDF which was provided by um, Sam Craghead of the. Um, um, the Museum of the the Civil War. Uh, and uh, you can't riffle PDFs. But um, I can tell by the scroll bar that we're coming very close to the end of that diary. So um, but uh, I, might, I might read. So uh, Sunday, July the 23rd, 1865. A magnificent breeze today, which is thought to be the commencement of the northeast trade. So they're, they're down to the trade winds. We got this wind about 48 hours ago in latitude 33 about which is rather high up for the trades but the wind has been so steady since I think most everyone on board is of the opinion that they are the trades. Yesterday we were going along 11 and 12 knots and today we have done better still. For the last three hours we have logged 13 knots and once the log line showed 14 knots. It is a beautiful sight to see the ship going through the water this way. The wind is very steady, little sea on, and the old Shenandoah is gliding as long as smoothly as you please. Being very light, she has a good deal of heel and rudder, which, is loose in the something or other, shakes at times. But for these signs, one would scarcely suppose she was going more than eight. So that the loose rudder is possibly as a result of uh, the um, the little altercation that they had with an iceberg um, a couple of weeks ago, where they uh, were worried that the rudder might in fact come off, which uh, which would have been bad. Yeah.
0: In- Interestingly, uh, Whistle doesn't mention anything about the rudder in his entry for that day. And. He's having a bit more of that religious introspection that he does when I think he's thinking things are going very badly. Oh dear. Um, the next, the next day, on uh, the twenty fourth of July, uh, um, once again the greatest pest of the ship, Henry Canning, has been reported to me for fighting and gets triced up again for three hours, and he says, "I wish he was out of the ship."
1: Oh dear. Oh dear. Uh,
0: beyond that. Uh, they go on to... And this is very, very interesting. They go on the next day um, when the, they're getting what he describes as light, baffling airs. Mm. Um, so they thought they were heading towards the northeastern trades, but now that they've almost been becalmed, he says, we must have been too hasty in coming to the conclusion that they were, they were in the trades. They decided to exercise at general quarters. Um, they do this again, and he actually mentions that they fired their guns for the first time. Actually, this was a, this was a few days earlier when they exercised General Cortis. Um They fired two blank cartridges, and can, he says that considering this was our first time, we did remarkably well, but we need practice, and without it, we cannot expect to be perfect. So it's interesting that at this very, very late juncture, they've actually tried firing their cannons for the first time. And I'm suspecting that this relates back to the issue that they've realised that they're in some serious trouble here. Because the war really is over and
1: they're still fighting on. Well, it, it what might, do you think, Rob? it might also be that um, again this, this doesn't seem to come up in the in the, in the in journal because he probably perhaps wasn't involved in the plans. but um uh, captain Waddell actually had a rather harebrained scheme to um, try and capture a battleship in the harbor of San Francisco and uh, turn the guns of the battleship uh, onto the city which um would have been a you know, would quite possibly have almost been a successful um surprise attack, given that the war had been over for two months and absolutely nobody was expecting <laughs> it. So, um, so Waddell might have sent the message down to Whittle, um, we perhaps need to practice firing these guns because we might actually be using them, but you know, don't tell the men because it does seem very strange to be... Um, Practising your guns for the first time, but I, I guess it's also reflecting that as as they get further and further um, uh, down towards um, you know the American mainland and and towards San Francisco, uh, yes, they're more likely to meet a mail packet, but um, they're also a lot more likely to meet a um, a Yankee warship, uh, which would be a much um, a much harder harder thing to um, to, um, to to fight than, than a whaler.
0: Yes, because they've, uh, as as uh, as it happened a few weeks earlier, they had sent several ships off packed with uh, parole prisoners, and at, at some point they're going to get the uh, the message out that the Shenandoah is out there. Yes. So they're, they're 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 getting. I think they're getting to a point of being rather desperate, actually. Um, interestingly, they were very scared of firing their guns because they he notes here that our eight-inch shell as they only recoiled about three or four feet, so perhaps they could have used their guns after all.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, they, they they don't really actually seem to have needed to use their guns. You know, I think it's the um as long as you, you you've got the big gun, you, you've got the Quaker cannon, you you don't actually need to fire it, and that that's actually you know a sign of um a sign of a good commander. I think Sun Sun Tzu would have approved. Yes. So they um,
0: they, I think they are getting to the point now where they know that bluff and subterfuge isn't going to work though, because if they actually meet a warship, they're in, they're in lot trouble.
1: No. So, so that, 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 that that's, that, that's where the Shenandoah are, you know, 150 years ago this week. Oh, now um, before I get on to my latitude and longitude piece um, last week, last week, as you recall, um, I floated a thought bubble that um, tear a strip off. Um, might have some reference uh, to whaling because, of course, in whaling you you do tear, tear strips off um, of um, off the well, whale. <laughs> and I knew that there was some connection in my head, but um uh, yeah, uh, people among them, um, uh, listener Barbara, who um, um I'm also married to, said that they were pretty sure that tear a strip off means you tear a stripe off somebody, as in you know you demote them on the field for incompetence or drunkenness or you know, and then, no doubt trice them up.
0: Oh yes, I can see that one. Yeah. Yes, yep. um,
1: but um, I finally I finally remembered what it was. It actually had a connection to whaling. It's the Rowan Atkinson hell sketch. And if you remember that sketch from uh, from from a number of years ago, it's uh, Rowan Atkinson is playing a devil, and he's down in hell, and he's you know telling various various you know, types of people you know, the, um, the 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 you know the terrible you know, fates that are in store for them. Um, and, and one of them is he gets to whalers. I'm going to tear a strip off you. So, so there you go. So there, 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 there was a connection. It's just not a. It's a uh, cultural connection, not a, a connection in fact.
0: Well, there you go.
1: <laughs> so, 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 Rob, uh, you're going to tell us a bit about uh, latitude
0: and longitude, I believe.
1: I am, and look, uh, I have to say, it's it's still a still a subject that's uh, somewhat, um, yeah somewhat baffling but it's also very interesting because you know just just quite how um ships managed to 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 find their way around the world um with with almost perfect accuracy is um something that really had only been that it only been possible for uh, for a couple of hundred years so I've, um, I've done a bit of research on that and um all through our, our our 40 episodes we've been you know talking about getting into the to the 40s or 50s i don't think they ever quite you know Got to the 60s because that's a bit arctic, but um, so um, I'll just um, try and uh, just explain a bit, and um, I'm, no doubt I'll, I'll get some stuff wrong, but uh, but here goes. Okay, well let's let's start with um, <laughs> with the the very simplest uh, concepts first. Okay, so latitude lines are parallel to the equator. That's why the the various 10th, 20th, 30th, 40th. Uh, Latitude are called uh, the parallels, uh, so that means that, that um, they, you know, each parallel goes uh, follows round the earth um, parallel to the equator. Now the longitude lines are perpendicular to the equator, which simply means that they are at a right angle to the equator. So the latitude lines are like slices across the earth and the um, longitude lines are like um, slices from one of those uh, Terry's chocolate oranges that you used to get uh, years and years ago, like little segments taken out of the earth. Now, uh, one of the, um, the consequences of this is that um, the latitude lines um, from zero to ninety north and south, um, they have the advantage that they are all um, the same, the same distance from each other, uh, which is a great help and I believe also uh, mathematically they can be derived in, in a number of different ways. Um, they can be derived from the the height of the sun at noon and uh, and at night it can be uh, done by measurement measuring the stars and the the measurement of longitude uh, can be done by uh, simultaneous timing of lunar eclipses gee doesn't that sound um but uh now obviously uh this is rather easier to do on on land than it is uh, on sea and uh on on land of course uh, you only have to do it once for each city and then you know what the longitude is of that city Uh, whereas uh, on a ship you are you are constantly traveling So while the actual mathematics of determining uh, longitude and latitude were derived uh, quite early on, the problem was in finding a practical way for doing that um, on board a ship. And uh, again, with... um, with latitude uh that was worked out uh by you had tables of the the height of the sun would reach in in various latitudes uh presumably with an allowance for the season and again that that kind of makes um makes makes sense if you think at the south or the north pole the sun will not get very high above the horizon and at certain times of the year during winter the sun might not even get above the horizon at all so if you have this table and if you measure how high the the sun gets above above the horizon at noon and you look up your table then you'll be able to work out what latitude uh, you are in now you could you could then uh, derive your longitude by what uh, what they call dead reckoning and Dead Reckoning was simply in terms of you, you start from a place where you know where you are, say a port. Uh, you measure your speed and your direction going out from that port. And then by the end of that that day, you should know theoretically where you are. Um, the problem with, with this method was that, um, well, given that they were measuring their speed by uh, throwing a log off the back of the boat and counting the knots going through that log while... Um, Uh, sand went through an hourglass, like the days of our lives. this was perhaps not always the, the most uh, the most accurate method and um, also any mistakes that you made if your sandglass glass was running a little bit slow or a little bit fast and you didn't know that um, any mistakes that you made uh, would be cumulative over time and uh, this could potentially have uh, very serious consequences indeed as as happened in the silly naval disaster of 1707 you know generally anything with disaster in the title yeah doesn't uh, doesn't bode well, so um, this was uh, one of the biggest uh, naval disasters caused purely by by weather, and it was loss of four warships of the English Royal Navy on 22 October 1707. More than 1,400 sailors lost their lives. Now now this is where this is where it gets creepy. Uh, the silly naval disaster was in the War of the Spanish Succession, which was of course when. Um, king charles of spain died um died airless and and we covered um the the poor unfortunate life of king charles of spain in, in an earlier episode he was the one who had oh one black shriveled testicle uh, no blood in his system and his brain i think was the, the size of a pea um, and of course he gave his name to the caroline islands which are now ponipe and where the shenandoah landed so everything is connected it's uh, it's kind of spooky but uh, now the these silly islands are at the entrance to the um, to the english channel and the um the the english uh, the the fleet was um travelling along quite uh, quite nicely or they they thought quite nicely they they thought they were in one place because they'd been dead reckoning but um they were in fact at another place, and uh, they they ran into the um, they ran into the land. Now, Wikipedia helpfully gives a nice legend of the disaster, which says that one myth associated with the disaster alleges that a common sailor on the flagship tried to warn Chevelle, that's Admiral Chevelle, that the fleet was off course, but the Admiral had him hanged at the yard arm for inciting mutiny. This story first appeared in the Silly Isles in 1780 with the common sailor being a silly native who recognised the waters as being close to home but was punished for warning the admiral. It was claimed that grass will never grow on the grave where Chevelle was first buried at Port Delic Cove because of his tyrannical act against an islander. Uh, well, this is a nice story, but um, uh, there is no record of it happening and um, it appears to be a bit unlikely that somebody just comes up and warns you that you're about to run onto the rock so you have him hung it, it, it just seems yeah a little bit a uh, little bit unlikely but because of this disaster in uh, 1714 the british uh, formed a board of longitude in order to uh, find a way to to you know, uh, to find out the longitude of a ship in an efficient manner. And a lot of the the, the very greatest mathematicians uh, of their day uh, worked on this problem over the centuries. Um, uh, in 1612, Galileo, having determined the orbital periods of Jupiter's four brightest satellites, uh, Galileo uh, proposed that with sufficient accurate knowledge of their orbits, one could use their positions as a universal clock. Um, well, that, that's a fantastic idea, but uh, as Wikipedia notes, the practical problems were severe and the method was never used at sea, uh, partly because it required a lab. This was an analogue computer that calculated time from the positions of the Jovian moon and got its name from its similarities to an astrolabe. Now, so, so this was never used at sea, however, it, it was in fact used on land. Um, Edmund Halley of, uh, of Comet fame... Uh, in uh, 1683, proposed using a telescope to observe the time of occultations or pulses of a star by the moon as a means of determining time while at sea. And um, Halley also had another way he hoped to do it but careful observations of magnetic deviations could provide a determinant of longitude. The magnetic field of the earth was not well understood at the time and what the, one of the things that they didn't understand well at the time was that uh, there are local variations in the magnetic field all over the world which uh, basically meant that that, uh, that didn't work. Now eventually um, basically they they came to the realisation that if if you knew the time at a particular point and and you knew the local time, then um, you could uh, work out um, the difference between them and and work out where you were. And and one of the reasons you can do that is that the the Earth is a globe. It has uh, 360 degrees, and that is why you have uh, 360 degrees of of longitude. And there were various... There was one main way that you could work out... um, that you could work out the time in Greenwich. And of course, um, this was uh, the basis of Greenwich Mean Time, uh, which is still still used today in some, uh, some parts of the world. Um, with one way was by, by lunar distances, uh, or the, the angle between uh, the moon and various stars, and you could back compute that to work out um, uh, yeah, what, what the time was back in Greenwich um, but the other way to do that um, because the calculator of lunar distances would, would does not sound easy or fun um, another way to do that of course was that if you could have a clock of sufficient accuracy that you could carry with you on your ship a clock that you could guarantee would lose very little if no time as you carried it around the world, then you could use that to compare with um, the, the clock that you also had that uh, you kept at the local time, and and you could use that to compare what longitude you were in. And because you already had the latitude, you could use those two together to, to work out exactly you were where you were on the Earth's surface now the the problem with that was that uh, timepieces in that day uh, were not notably accurate and also most of them uh, relied on pendulums and um, as you can imagine um, with a ship rolling and uh, and bucketing a a, a pendulum driven clock was uh, probably not not going to be able to maintain its time now eventually um, john harrison a yorkshire carpenter uh、built a marine car- chronometer and he built five of these things, and um, and the, the the fourth one uh, got a sea trial and satisfied all the requirements for the Longitude Prize. However, he was not awarded the prize and was forced to fight for his reward. And uh, there was a book a few years ago, I, I think called Longitude, uh, which is all about uh, the fight by, um, by Harrison for his re- reward. And of course, um, the reason that uh, Harrison was not uh, awarded that was because he was a Yorkshire... Um, Carpenter, he was not, you know, um Halley or Isaac Newton or or even Galileo. Um now finally um, he was rewarded in 1773, but uh, his chronometers did not become did not become standard. Um, they were chronometers were still very expensive in, into the 19th century, and that's why the the method of lunar distances um, using a sextant was was also uh, you know, carried on for many years. But by the time of the uh, American Civil War, when the Shenandoah was sailing, um, you know. Chronometers were comparative, comparatively cheap, and the use of uh, dual chronometers um, uh, was 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 a, a highly developed technique. Um, now, in order to um, uh, basically, if you have two clocks and one of them tells a different time from the other, you basically do not know which one of them is right or which one of them is wrong. And apparently, uh, because of that, there was a, a a naval saying or a sea saying. Never take two kilometres. Take one or take three. And look, I just thought I'd finish up this uh, <laughs> very brief and uh, and simple uh, explanation. <laughs> At least it uh, it worked for me in working out uh, how, how difficult it was to to work out exactly where on uh, you were on the Earth's surface, and, and also what a what a uh, you yeah, know, what, 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 a, what a critical problem it was to get solved. But um, I thought I'd finish with a um, quotation from the Australian uh, poet, Kenneth Slesswell's poem, uh, Five Visions of Captain Cook. And uh, this is the third vision. Two chronometers the captain had, one by Arnold that ran like mad, one by Kendall in a walnut case, poor devoted creature with a hanged-onk face. Arnold always hurried with a crazed click-click dancing over Greenwich like a lunatic. Kendall painted faithfully his watchdog beat, climbing out of yesterday with sticky little feet. Arnold choked with appetite to wolf up time, madly round the numerals his hands would climb. His cogs rushed over and his wheels ran miles, dragging Captain Cook to the Sandwich Isles. But Kendall dawdled in the tombstone past with a sentimental prejudice to going fast. And he thought very often of a haberdasher's door, and a yellow-haired boy who would knock no more. All through the night-time, clock-talk-to-clock, clock, in the captain's cabin, tick-tock-tock, one tick's fast and one tick's slow, and time went over them a hundred years ago. I think there's something there for all of us, don't you? Okay.
0: Rob, that was that was fascinating. You know, what, what? I, what I found uh, interesting there was you talked about the chronometers that are used to calculate where you are with, uh, with longitude. It was in uh, the Cyril Pearl book, which I can't hold up to the microphone because I don't have it with me, that it mentioned that every time they captured a ship, they took the ship's chronometer yes. and uh, Captain Waddell actually had them displayed as trophies in his, in his cabin. Well, he would have had uh, some thirty or so chronometers by the end, which is a pretty impressive haul, you'd have to say.
1: Oh, that that would be a lot of chronometers, and I, I wonder if they all if all thirty of them kept 30, kept perfect time. Although um, I think you might have to just say, uh, because yes, because um, you know, a couple of ships that, that had to rely very, had to do very precise um, calculations would take would take four chronometers, but um, I, I can't find any record of uh, of a ship that took thirty. So, uh, so, so there you No. <laughs> and, uh, and it'd be interesting to know. It'd be interesting
0: to know where those chronometers ended up when the when the Shenandoah came back to port. That would be something to to track down and find out. But anyway, that's that's something for another episode. So well, uh,
1: I, I think, well, yes, if they stayed with the ship and were sold to the Sultan of Zanzibar, so maybe the Sultan of Zanzibar ended up with um, with thirty ships kilometers. But um, yes, I think that that might perhaps be something that's, that's lost to the mists of time. Um,
0: well, well, next next week's episode, Rob, I um. I think I will be dialing in from possibly from uh, Abu Dhabi in
1: the oh, Middle East. So you're going back to the pirate coast. Oh look, look, I, e- I, am. every everything is connected. Yes, there, there, there is you know, synchronicity, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all all across the world. But um, but this has been your helping of uh, of synchronicity for this week. So uh, once again, this has been Shenandoah down under or Confederate Pirates save the whales with Robert and Bob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And
0: I'm Bob, and we'll catch you next week. Tally-ho. And ahoy.
1: (laughs) Okay.